Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of May 28th, 2018. On this week's show, ESPN's Kevin Pelton will be here to chat with us about how the Cavs and the Warriors made the NBA Finals for the fourth year in a row, and how the Celtics and Rockets missed out. I'm guessing it was because they missed 8,000 three-pointers. Gene Demby of NPR's Code Switch will also join us to discuss the NFL's new national anthem policy, which reads like it was dictated by Donald Trump. And Deadspin's Laura Wagner will chat with us about her decision to name Barstool Sports' PFT commenter, given name, Eric Sollenberger. Joining me here in our studio in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book Word Freak, which was featured on C-SPAN 2's Book TV on July 17th, 2001. Welcome, Stefan. Hi, Josh. That was filmed at a Barnes & Noble in New York City. There was a Q&A. I want to play one of the questions from the audience. Do you know what's your favorite word? Excellent question. All right, two-part question. Did you, in fact, think it was an excellent question, or did you only say that because it was a kid? No, I hate that question. That's a terrible question. But it was a kid. It's a kid. So you were being polite. I was. Do you remember what you said? I probably said that it was okwasa because it scored the most points, or it was like a beautiful word that I had studied. Let's go to the tape. My favorite word that I've ever played on a scra- in a Scrabble game is uh, I played at the club not too long ago um, against someone who's here tonight. And the word is Okwasa. O-Q-U-A-S-S-A. Okwasa. It's a kind of wow. fish. It is? Did you know that, child? I don't think I did. I can't remember. I probably did. I don't know. It wasn't my daughter. I thought it might be my daughter. But then I realized that 2001, she wasn't alive. So that would have... <laughs> Rolled her out. Okwasa. Yeah, it's a fish. It's I a fish. I studied all the Q7s. Okwasa. Oh, the poor Houston Rockets, Stefan. is an, segue. Is another word that starts with a. They had the Golden State Warriors in a very tight spot down 3-2 in the Western Conference Finals. But Chris Paul hurt his hamstring at the very end of Game 5 and missed the rest of the series. In Game 6, Houston blew a 17-point lead and got outscored 64-25 to in the second half. In Game 7, Houston blew a 15-point lead and missed 27 straight three-pointers. It was all very sad and miserable. And I'm not sure it'll be any consolation to anyone in Houston to say that the Rockets at least demonstrated that the Warriors' path to the finals and their third title in four years was not inevitable. But congratulations for that, I guess, Houston Rockets. Uh, Joining us now to discuss Houston and Golden State and Boston and Cleveland is ESPN's Kevin Pelton. Welcome back to the podcast, Kevin. Hey, thanks for having me back on. You were at the game on Monday night, Kevin, and you were a guy who approaches the game in a sabermetric mathematical fashion. Were you yelling at the Rockets to stop shooting three-pointers? Or were you like, the numbers are in your favor. Keep shooting. Three is better than two. 
I mean, I think probably somewhere in between. Like, you've operated this way for 82 games in the regular season, and uh, I don't know off the top of my head exactly how many games in the playoffs, but, you know, somewhere around... 16 before that in the playoffs. Okay. Almost 100 games now over the course of the season. I don't know that you can totally just adjust at that point, especially based on, you know, when it's 15 shots or it's 17 shots. I mean, (laughs) I, I do think that, you know, you can't say that these are as good shots as they would be over the course of the entire regular season because of the cumulative fatigue that had set in in this series, particularly after Chris Paul went down and the Rockets basically had six players they trusted. You know, basically it was a six-man rotation, and those guys got, I think, to some extent playing into the ground. But it's not like they were forcing a bunch of threes. It's not like they were, you know, trying to make up a deficit in one shot by continually trying to take terrible threes. These were mostly good threes. These were the same kind of shots they've taken all season. And just as befits the tragic characters that are, you know, Chris Paul in the playoffs and Rockets in the playoffs, it betrayed them at the worst possible time. You said this is what they do, and volume shooting is what they do, and volume three shooting is still smart, even though the Rockets missed a lot of three-point shots. But is volume shooting smart when you're clearly fatigued, James Harden is dribbling the ball constantly, and is, he's obviously times. fatigued, and you don't look for any other solution? Or is it a oh, shit, we're falling behind. We have no choice but to continue to do what we do. Kevin Durant said after the game, we knew at some point they'd tired out. James dribbled so much each possession. I know at some point he'll wear down and we're going on him on the defensive side of the ball as well. Well, I think the other aspect that's at play here is, look, as soon as Chris Paul went out, the Rockets, even with home court in Game 7, were underdogs in this series. They were only the second team to be an underdog at home in a Game 7 since 2003, according to Bob Volgaris's database. The other being the Rockets against the Clippers a couple of years ago in the semifinal where they came back from 3-1. So I, I do think that you know the higher variance strategy actually probably did make some sense for them to shoot a lot of threes without Chris Paul. That's your best chance if you have that kind of hot shooting the first half that they did at Golden State in Game 6 was probably your best chance to beat the Warriors because the fact is, whatever they did, the Warriors were probably going to have an answer. Let's bring the Celtics in here to join this parade. Speaking of of bad shooting. They missed 32 three-pointers in their Game 7 loss on Sunday. And the Rockets shot out of 99 games. This was their 99th best three-point shooting percentage. So it was their worst of the year. Mm-hmm. And the Celtics, it was 99th out of 101. I thought the inside the NBA guys after the game, they're like the least sabermetrically inclined people in the universe. But like Barkley, I thought made a good point, which is that you can really tell the NBA has changed when you miss 26 in a row and you like shoot the 27th. And it's just, it was an interesting referendum, I thought, on the aesthetics and the style of the modern NBA because, you know, if we appreciate the modern NBA at its best and that was like Steph Curry making those threes and whoever else, you know, for the Warriors, like, and leading their comeback in game seven, you've got to like take it at its worst, which is it was really awful to watch the Celtics miss all those threes and watch uh, <laughs> the Rockets miss all those threes. Yeah, I mean, I guess the uh, the flip side of it is, you know, the Warriors, they didn't shoot 
that poorly, certainly. But, uh, you know, they struggled from three in the first half of the game of game seven and it didn't affect their strategy. They kept playing their game and then eventually Steph Curry got hot and, and that's how they, they were able to close the deficit and, and take the lead in the third quarter. So, you know, I think that the, you kind of see it from both sides. It becomes obvious after you know that they were going to miss <laughs> 20 sure. plus in a row that they probably should have shot that many. But each individual shot, you know, the likelihood, again, it probably goes down a little bit because of the fact that you know that you're fatigued and that all those elements, but it doesn't go to zero percent. Yeah. And the Warriors also were criticized all series long for playing iso ball with Duran and not moving enough. Or at least in the first five games. And then at the end of the game, you know, how did they win? They won because Durant played iso ball and made a bunch of great one-on-one plays. Yeah, which really reveals how much of this is results-based analysis as opposed to actually evaluating the process. So, Kevin, you're somebody who, you know, your job is to think through both predictions and, and after the fact, like, look at the reasons why teams win and the reasons why teams lose. And a big question that folks like you faced all year was, how can you translate regular season performance to the playoffs in an era when, you know, a team like the Warriors, they would admit and try their best during the regular season, both because of a conscious strategy around player rest and just because they're tired of the regular season. I mean, Ty Lue of the Cavs said it openly after they won. We are tired of the regular season. And, you know, the Rockets were the analytical statistical favorite to come out of the West. The Toronto Raptors were the analytical favorite to come out of the East. So is it possible to build a model or to think through how these teams are going to perform in the playoffs when they don't show you who they really are during the regular season? It's a challenge. I mean, I, I think that it's possible. And, and obviously, we can adjust for this subjectively. And, and the Warriors were, in fact, favorites in this series. I I picked them you know, to, to win this, even though if you looked strictly based on regular season performance and home court advantage, you, you know, the Rockets were the obvious pick from that standpoint. I, I look at the two models that we use at different places in ESPN. The, the basketball power index model had Houston and Boston both as huge favorites in these two series. Uh, the 538 model that Nate Silver and company have developed uh, using more of an ELO method, that, that's much more heavily weighted towards recent performance. And then they also built in this year an adjustment for playoff experience because that sort of tends to act as a proxy, I would say, for you know how seriously you're going to take the regular season relative to the playoffs along with kind of the value right. of that experience. And so you know, I'm pretty sure that they did have the Warriors favored in this series. I, I don't think they had the Cavaliers favored going in, but even the playoff experience factor wasn't enough to make up for how poorly they'd played in the first round of the playoffs against Indiana. But, you know, you can adjust for it, but capturing all of it is probably difficult and and may remain until we get some sort of sophisticated way to use the tracking stats to measure effort and focus, something like that. Uh, May remain something that's better done. You know, it's sort of like the, uh, the freestyle chess model where the best, most effective strategy is to combine the statistical models with the intuition that an expert level of analysis can provide. And then you also have to combine or create some sort of algorithm for LeBron James because the level of increased performance 
was pretty high, even for LeBron James. I mean, he played 46 minutes in game six. He played all 48 minutes in game seven. You know, we saw him doing things. he had said three years ago that he couldn't play all 48 minutes of a playoff game. Right. He was just physically incapable of it. Physically incapable. Um, You know, maybe part of that was something we talked about on the show last week that one of your colleagues wrote about, about LeBron sort of taking two, three minutes during games to regather himself and just stand at the far end of the court, not coming (laughs) back on D, not walking down the court during foul shots. Um, but, But there is some sort of, you know, mystical level of willing himself to just play out of his mind um, and do things that we don't ever see on a basketball court, except when he does them. Yeah. And I mean, that was particularly interesting going into game seven, because again, you look at even the the course of the series, you look at the historical value of home court advantage in game seven, which uh, did not prove the case in either of the game sevens over the last two nights. You know, Boston was the clear favorite. They were favored by I think two to two and a half in Vegas, depending on where you looked. 10 and 0 at home in the postseason. Yeah. And yet there was still this sort of consensus among people looking at it who weren't gambling their money on it that, look, it's LeBron in a game seven. You can't bet against him. And, and in this case, that proved accurate. So again, I ask you, um, how do you think about that in your work? Because we all kind of sit here and say that, oh, you don't bet against LeBron. But when you're actually trying to model something, how do we account for somebody who's made the finals eight years in a row? And how do you account <laughs> for somebody who his team was 29th in in defense in the regular season and no team with that attribute has ever made it nearly this far? Is he kind of like mocking your work and your existence? <laughs> Uh, I, I certainly wouldn't say he was doing that. Actually, I felt probably more like the Celtics were doing that for a lot of this postseason than Cleveland, even though they, you know, were slightly better during the regular season. Like it, it was more expected that Cleveland was going to be able to do this. You, you can look at the track record of how much Cleveland has overachieved in the playoffs, and then, you know, the other thing is you can start to adjust for personnel if you're, you know, building a model. Like a lot of the the statistical models that we have to evaluate teams are based on kind of team level performance. How well did you do in the regular season, etc. But you could also go, you know, the bottom up model instead of the top down and look at, well, how do we evaluate these individuals from that? How do we evaluate the team? And that's where you can start to adjust for, well, the fact that LeBron is on the court 48 minutes means that not only is their best player on the court all more, but also they're taking somebody else who's weak, and in this case, probably Rodney Hood, out of the rotation entirely or limiting the minutes that Jordan Clarkson plays. And that you know, can have a pretty profound impact on how well a team rates. I mean, I remember that, you know, I was looking back at, this was a kind of an after-the-fact assessment, but looking back at the Warriors' 2015 playoff run the first year and how much did they benefit from the injuries that teams had during that year's playoff run, which, you know, continued to be a theme of the postseason in the NBA, the key role of injuries. And, you know, Cleveland, even with Kyrie Irving only playing one game, Kevin Love not playing at all in that series, still rated as a really good opponent because of the fact that LeBron was playing 40-plus minutes a night. Looking forward to the finals, the fourth straight Cavaliers-Warriors final. You sound weary. <laughs> no. I mean, imagine being a Greek fan. Olympiakos, Panathinaikos, 13 straight years. <laughs> I'm going to uh, race past that and just note this is the first one with Nick Young and Jordan Clarkson. That so is true. All right, so how do we factor in LeBron's fatigue level? He's going to get five days off here. He's played in 100 straight games. 
100 straight games. He did not take a game off this year. Thank um, you to the Raptors for not showing up in round two. Just give him a little breather. A little breather there, yeah. He needed treatment after game six on his leg. Played every minute of game seven, as we discussed. So how do you factor LeBron's performance into the finals? Does everything go out of the window? I mean, I mean, how do you build a model to predict what possibly might happen in the finals in terms of how LeBron is going to need to play like 67 minutes <laughs> in order to contain the Warriors? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing we know about this series is that LeBron can be amazing can be, you know, I think in 2015, this was the case. And you could even make a, it, an argument in 2017, as well as Kevin Durant played, like he can be the best player in the series and the Cavaliers can still lose and potentially not even lose all that cost. I mean, that's the difference between these two teams is that the Warriors have star talent that is not all that much worse than LeBron and Kevin Durant and Steph Curry. And then they've got two all-stars on top of that and Clay Thompson and Draymond Green who can go off at any point. I mean, I think the, you know, the one factor here that could be different is Andre Iguodala has been a huge difference maker in the finals the, each of the last three years. The Warriors have consistently been at their best when he's been defending LeBron, when he's been on the court and allowing them to, to play with Draymond Green at center and, and not kind of run out of wing players to play around that group, as we saw in the last three games, or the last four games, I should say, of the Houston series after he went out. So I, I think Iguodala is probably the biggest wild card in this series in terms of how dominant Golden State can be but ultimately i think you know what we're going to find is we saw in the course of the, the western conference finals there was a lot of guys who were useful during the regular season important players for the rockets who just could not stay on the court against the warriors because the fact that any weakness you have at either end of the court they're going to pick apart well, that doesn't Cleveland, work well for the cavaliers exactly cleveland has a lot of guys like that <laughs> you could argue that jeff green is like that and he played 42 minutes in game seven with kevin love out of that game uh, and, and played quite well i mean kevin love himself may be an example of that they're going to hunt him down defensively as they you know have tried to do it various times throughout all these last three finals or the last two finals since he missed the 2015 one. So I, I think that's probably going to be a bigger factor than how good LeBron is, even though I'm not betting on him getting fatigued at any point. That went both directions in the Western Conference finals because the Warriors have all these centers that couldn't play mm -hmm. a minute against the Rockets and the Rockets, you know, as much as any NBA team can counteract the Warriors for all-stars, Daryl Morey, you know, built a team could do that. that could do that and you know after game seven eric gordon said we would have won if chris paul was in the lineup and i don't blame him you're rolling your eyes i'm only rolling my eyes because andre iguodala didn't play like everyone seems to sure. forget that like that well, might have neutralized some of what happened in games four five six and seven it would have changed it Right. Chris Paul is their best or second best player, you know, was or, or their you know, most important player in that series. Andre Iguodala is probably like fifth for the Warriors. So you can understand Houston fans and, and Rockets players feeling Chris Paul might be fifth on the Warriors, too. Oh, come on, dude. <laughs> just like stop. Um, anyway, I wanted to get to a larger point about counterfactuals here. And you also had guys on the rocket saying we can't think like that you know it's no ex no excuses we had a 17 point lead we had a 15 point lead you know we could have done it with the guys that we had but like all of these series that we've been talking about you know kevin said kevin love wasn't in the you know 
2015 finals, you know, Draymond Green gets ejected from, you know, in 2016. Like nothing ever happens uh, the way that we think it's going to happen. And none of like the the rosters stay the same. Everything is like extremely tenuous. And so I guess the question for Kevin is, as you're like thinking this through and you're predicting these series, how much can we, you know, say right now or how much can we think we know about what's going to happen when like every series that's ever been played like you know if you look back at the end except for maybe the Cavs Raptor series um, <laughs> well hey hey if they would have won game one I mean they lost two games by one point and or one or two points in that series one possession that's true I guess, um, I guess it's <laughs> theoretically possible they could have won those games but like as we're sitting here right now like is it all just like a farce and talking about you know here's here's what the keys are no, I mean, we, you know, we can still predict the outcome of ser- series with a reasonable degree of certainty. I, I think it's probably more, you know, it's more kind of the after the fact legacy aspects of it that probably end up getting determined by this. I mean, the you know, Houston Golden State, we didn't necessarily expect it to go seven. We didn't expect it to go from after game three. We're talking about how, you know, the Warriors run is so inevitable and no one even is close to them to after game five. We're talking about like legitimately people were asking if they lose this series, do they need to break up the big four? I mean, that's how it's a span of four days. We've gone from one extreme to the entire opposite extreme, which is probably a good indication that we overreact to things. But, you know, you mentioned uh, my colleague, Brian Windhorst earlier, who wrote that piece on LeBron James's fatigue. He likes to talk about kind of the margins that teams have. And LeBron gives his teams a lot of margin. Like other things, everything else can go wrong for the Cavaliers as it has roster wise over the last 12 months. And LeBron still gives them an opportunity to get to the NBA finals because of the fact that he's that good. But this is the one series where the team with LeBron James doesn't have the greater margin for error. Golden State has so much elite talent. You know, I think that if we look at all the possible contingencies here, the vast majority of them still favor the Warriors. Warriors are huge favorites in the finals, the biggest favorite in a really, really long time. Game one is on uh, Thursday night. We don't know how the Warriors are going to win the title. We just know they're probably going to win. Kevin Pelton of ESPN, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to the NFL and the National Anthem, a heads up that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus today, Kevin Pelton will be back to talk with us about his recent piece in which he set out to determine scientifically slash mathematically slash algorithmically whether LeBron James or Michael Jordan is the greatest NBA player of all time. Stefan can tune out for that discussion. But for the rest of us, if you want to hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. The National Football League's new national anthem policy is certain to do one thing, satisfy no one. The league's 32 owners last week decreed that during the playing of the song before games, players can either stand on the field 
or stay in the locker room. People who have been critical of the racial justice protest movement in the league, like the president of the United States, said it gives the players an unpatriotic out. People who have supported the protest movement said it further suppresses players' rights. Gene Demby of NPR is here. He is a correspondent for Code Switch, a blog and podcast about race and identity. Gene, welcome back to the show. What's good, Joe? Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Uh, this is a dog's breakfast of a policy, which isn't surprising given the way that the NFL usually does business by focus group. In this case, the league has been concerned first and foremost with how its customers have responded to the protests. And let's be clear that the protests have been very limited. But in doing so, they neglected to consider how the players might respond. Mm-hmm. Let's start there, Gene. Has the NFL given the players the leverage that they had lost in this debate over the last year. Yeah, I mean, it seems like all of a sudden this issue has become like not just a conversation about like, you know, the validity of protests against police violence, right? Now it's a conversation about just free speech right, broadly, right? I mean, a few NFL reporters on Twitter sort of said they had sort of informal conversations with players who were saying that like, you know, they were really, really pissed off and agitated by the, the league taking this stance and that they would probably be more outspoken or they would find ways to push back against the league. And I think that's the kind of thing that, like, weirdly, I mean, it might potentially, like, sort of screw up some of the political ali- alignments of this conversation, right? Because a lot of sort of the free speech diehards are people who are, like, often very dismissive of social justice complaints, right? And they might, you know, find themselves aligning with the players in this case because you know, this conversation is very quickly becoming a conversation about constraining the speech of employees, you know? Yeah. And there's been a lot of goalpost moving we've seen the last week or so. And just very predictably, um, as soon as a policy comes out that says, you know, it's okay if you don't want to stand for the anthem, you can just stay in the locker room. Donald Trump immediately comes out and tweets that if you stay in the locker room, you shouldn't be in this country. And that was... Pred- he said it. He didn't even tweet it. <laughs> yeah. um, it's predictable. Um, if the if NFL ownership or Roger Goodell, you know, professes to be surprised by that, then they're idiots. I mean, there's no way to come up with a policy, as you said in your introduction, Kier Stefan, that is going to please anyone. And just the fact that this has kind of remained front and center of the conversation. The idea that the NFL could come in and try to diffuse this is is folly. I think that's absolutely right. And the NFL believes by virtue of its all-powerful Oz-like image that it can just speak and this will go away. And that's what it wants. It wants this to just go away because the last year has been so traumatic for the league and it's botched its response to it at every single step of the way. You know, it thought it was doing a great thing by inviting a coalition of players to its offices on Park Avenue in New York to hammer out some sort of resolution and create some sort of accommodation for the players. That broke down quickly with infighting among the players and infighting with the owners. It thought it was doing a great thing by offering $90 million to create some sort of social justice outreach efforts. That broke down, too, when the players disagreed on, on how this money was spent, and it became clear that this money wasn't all going toward the movements that the NFL was trying to align itself with. So they've, they've fucked this up every step of the way, to no one's surprise. 
It seems like this is just par for the course under the Goodell sort of uh, reg- regime, right? I mean, like he sort of issues these directives by fiat and they're not really, you know, carefully considered, or, or at least that's the way they sort of land into the public. You know, a lot of the owners were saying that they didn't even sign off on this current arrangement, right? I mean, which was weird because Goodell came up and said, like, we came, to, we, there was a vote. And then as soon as this recent news about the the new rules around player protests came out, all these owners came out and said, like, nah, we didn't say that at all. Like, I mean, one owner, the Jets owner said that, you know, he would pay for any fines. He thought there was a, this was an unfair constraint on player speech. Um, one other owner uh, said that he, that he had abstained, that this was an informal vote, that it was never really like a, a vote vote. So, I mean, this is a hard issue for the NFL to legislate for a bunch of reasons. But the NFL it seems to be like uniquely poorly positioned to, to like wade into this stuff just because of its governance. There is going to be an interesting alignment here like this has been a story about alliances in the very beginning when colin kaepernick kneeled and eric reed kneeled alongside him there was an alliance of nfl players who believed in the importance of doing a protest for racial justice that alliance splintered at some point along the way where you had the Malcolm Jenkins-led Players Coalition kind of separate from the Colin Kaepernick, Eric Reed group. On the other side, you had some NFL owners who were saying, you know, we don't think that, you know, the league needs to come down that hard on these players. The majority seemed to want it to go away and, and wanted to punish the players because they didn't want, you know, a bad tweet from Donald Trump or because this is just what they believe because, you know, this is, you know, the background that they come from and they don't think that the players have any right to protest or that they think it's a distraction. It'll be really interesting to see if there's any kind of like realignment that happens here. If this new NFL policy brings the players together, maybe brings players together with athletes from other sports or with, um, you know, other prominent figures. And then on the other side, whether the owners can actually come together and Gene, you mentioned the splintering already, whether they can come together and create a united front around this policy that we are regulating and policing our players' speech in this way and we are going to stand by it and we think it's important to do this. I'm going to jump in here and say that the owners have never been terribly good at unifying around policies, whether it's revenue sharing or TV rights or expansion. There are always divisions among owners, small market, big market, old, young, traditional NFL owners that go back to the 1920s, new owners, nouveau riche billionaires who have come to the league in the last 20 years. The more interesting part to me is the first thing you talked about, Josh, which is what kind of agency this gives to the players. Because the one thing that players are unified on is that Ownership is brutal toward them, that they put their bodies and lives on the line and they get treated like shit. And that doesn't matter if you're black or if you're white or if you're Kaepernick or if you're Richie Incognito. That is a through line in the way players feel about management. And what the NFL may have done here is bring players closer together. Whether players who may disagree about what these protests were about or how they feel about patriotism and the NFL's role in promulgating it, it may be a unifying force for at least some players. It'll bring some players over the line. Chris Long, who has been very supportive of the Philadelphia Eagles, has been very supportive of the protest movement, um, wrote over the weekend about how 
that about this is about the owners. These owners don't love America more than the players demonstrating and taking real action to improve it. It also lets you as a fan know where our league stands. You're right. I mean, this is going to become increasingly understood, I think, not just a story about sort of social justice, but a story about labor, right? Which is obviously, you know, always been an issue in the NFL, but this is sort of like a much more obvious example and maybe like a more understandable example of sort of the labor relations in the NFL that might be hard, you know, whenever the NFL has a disagreement over the CBA or they, they there's some sort of like uh, prospect of a labor stoppage. That's often hard for, I think, like regular people to sort of get their minds around because we're talking about millionaires and billionaires in a lot of cases. Right. But I think this is a this is something that is a little bit more like easy to wrap your mind around. Like this is the orientation of labor to management across all sorts of industries in all sorts of fields. Traditionally, the NFL players have sort of suffered from the idea that they were like entitled. Right. Uh, but this might be one of the few instances where they might be able to like win a lot of public sympathy because this is not about sort of the billions of dollars floating around the NFL economy. This is about something uh, I think that a lot of people can relate to uh, in a much less abstract way uh, in terms of the way they relate to their own management and their own jobs. Right. And I think back to the question of the NFL trying to make this go away. I mean, the stakes are very clear here. Um, mm. Just look at where Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed are now, unsigned right. and filing collusion grievances. And the NFL, you know, they've basically created this situation where the two options for the players are don't protest anymore and you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Or protest and not only will it be a situation where you're inviting criticism and invective from uh, the more troglodytic uh, areas of the fan base, you're also (laughs) creating a scenario in which the league is now going to be put in a position where they're fining your team. You're going to be putting yourself in a position where there are clear examples where um, you've been shown that you will not be in the league anymore if you do this. And so what the league is doing by like supposedly trying to create a way for this to go away, they're just creating a scenario in which if the players do press on, they're creating a heightened conflict that's only going to bring more attention to this. And so we'll just have to wait and see how the players respond. Well, the fact that the NFL wasn't able to see that, that they would be doing nothing more than extending and amplifying this conflict is really shocking, even for all of the NFL's public relations miscues historically. Mm-hmm. The NFL did this, try, tried to do this sort of surreptitiously. And I don't mean that in a public sense, but they jammed this new policy into its games operations manual. Um, and that's why they argue it doesn't need to be collectively bargained. Right. But the players, as Michael McCann explains on SportsIllustrated.com, the players are going to argue that this impacts potentially their wages, their hours, their conditions of employment, that this is an a labor battle waiting to happen. So what the NFL has done is basically take a situation that was dying out on its own. There weren't a lot of protests toward the end of last season. There weren't a lot of players kneeling. Kaepernick was not viewed sympathetically by whatever percentage of the NFL's core fan base. They have now returned the focus publicly to this issue and have thrown gasoline on the fire by turning it into a potential labor case or a lawsuit that could drag on for a long, long time. Is that just hubris? Do you guys think that's just hubris? Like the NFL has been able to basically, you know, operate with more or less impunity. The ratings are still ridiculous. Like, I mean, they're down 10%, right, on the year, I think. But like, you know, 
most other leagues would kill to have those ratings, right? Like, do you sure. think this is just a, like a function of just like decades and decades of unfettered cultural dominance? Is that what's going on here? I think partly. And I think, you know, a post on Deadspin raised the point that a lot of the analysis, and I would include myself in this, has been that the owners did this to please Donald Trump or out of fear that Trump could like use his Twitter account to, you know, just make people angry about what the NFL is doing. But what this point post pointed out is that this is what these owners believe, the majority of them. Like they don't need to be told to be mad at like players protesting about social justice. Like um and I think part of it you know, could be hubris, but part of it could just be like residual anger that the players, you know, hijacked the narrative of the last couple seasons away from like, you know, football, Tom Brady or whatever, whatever it is, and got people looking and talking about things that had nothing to do with what was going on between the lines. And they just were mad about that. Or it's a logical culmination of decades of attempting to leverage patriotism for its own marketing purposes. I mean, the league has been doing this since the second Super Bowl when they had a flyover and the commissioner, Pete Rozelle, later said, yeah, that was all very intentional, that we wanted to align the league with patriotism. When you align yourself with patriotism over time, your understanding of what patriotism is tends to warp. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happened with the NFL. You know, the belief that they stand for something that is core to American values, that the league is aligned with flags and the military and flyovers. And instead of being aligned with what it really is, which is a game that a lot of people like to watch that gets a lot of companies to pay them a lot of money. Right. That's right. Eventually, this was going to be something that was going to explode, at least like not this issue, maybe not police violence, but some issue around race in America was going to sort of take over, was going to agitate these sort of like late intentions, right? Because, you know, you have this basically all white ownership class, right? You have a player base that is what, 70% African-American, right? More. They're, like, it was, so it's more than 70% African-American, right? So we're having, we like the people who watch football are politically, like I think they're slightly right of center, African-American folks broadly i mean like broadly overwhelmingly vote for democrats right and so like we're we're like these are both the people sort of performing for the fan base for the for the for the television fan base of the nfl and the fan base itself um are so like ideologically and demographically distinct that like it's going to take more and more effort to to tamp down the inherent tension there that these people are probably would not be very like ideologically aligned across any number of issues or at least uh, like aligned in terms of like partisan affiliation across any number of issues um sooner or later those things are going to come to a head like do you have all these young black men who are having vastly different experiences in america than the overwhelming majority of the people who are watching the sport like sooner or later um those things were going to blow up and it may not have been police violence but it was going to be something as far as this staying in the news cycle, we now have these grievances, um, the Kaepernick and Reed grievances that are going on behind the scenes. Owners um, and management of various teams are being uh, deposed, and there's going to be an outcome there. Um, we're also going to have, you know, whatever legal battle there is about this new policy. 
And then the season is going to start. And so it's just going to, there are going to be these moments where it keeps coming up. And the idea that we can keep this issue, we can keep protesting players in the locker room, like all of these, um, you know, all of these behaviors, all of these decisions that the NFL has made, there are going to be consequences for each of them, <laughs> potentially in arbitration, potentially in courtroom, and potentially on the field. And it's not going to go away. Do you guys think Eric Reed and Colin Kaepernick are basically done as NFL players? Yeah, I kind of think that Kaepernick is done. The NFL was asking customers whether they thought teams should sign Colin Kaepernick. Yeah, that just came out. That just came out last week. And the fact that the NFL, again, is trying to focus group how it responds to the situation is deadly. And the fact that not one team has has stepped forward and signed Kaepernick is, of course, a, you know, two years now since he's been on the field. I can't imagine that someone's going to sign him. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that I don't think Eric Reed is done. He's certainly not done as far as his ability to play football. I don't think Kaepernick is either. But, um, uh, you know, it, it's it's impossible to predict. Like, it, it's obviously, like, crazy to think that this guy won't be able to play again. Guys. But, um, you know, if sitting here right now, I just, I, get, I have no idea really. I mean, the owners are obviously going to be, like, super pissed off that they brought collusion grievances along with the fact that they protested, which uh, maybe you can bring a, a grievance about being black blacklisted for uh, bringing a grievance. I don't know. We're starting to get like ne- <laughs> nesting, nesting grievances here. But these, you know, the owners are not the type, you know, despite the fact that like maybe the Jets guy will come out and say, we'll pay the fines. Nobody at this point has shown any willingness to stick uh, their neck out in any way that um, would invite, you know, negative attention from the president, negative attention from, you know, an angry core of the fan base. Yeah, the 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 finding of the team seems to me like like this like like a uh, mustache twirly like Machiavellian uh, move, right? Like, because then you implicate the owners in a different way, right? Like, then you're like, okay, well, the owners are going to have to take a more hands-on approach to, you know, to some some random player kneeling before the anthem, right? Like, there's there's something about well, there's that. also like you need to control your players, exactly, right, exactly. Like now you have to go down and like give these dudes a, a stern talking to because it's going to hit your pockets. It's going to directly hit your pockets, which is there's something really disgusting about that construction. That's like this should really unsettle people. The NFL basically is trying to collectivize um, the punishment that it wants to dole out to individual players, and it wants to do that by like activating these like rich white dudes against these black dudes who work for them. That's really, really, really distressing. I think. Gene Denby is a correspondent for NPR's Code Switch. Gene, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate y'all. Thank you so much. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Matt, two-part question. One, uh, are you an elite quarterback? 
You know, I, I don't think about that too much. If you have but to say. I believe, no, I believe that uh, anytime we go out onto the field, I can get the job done. And regardless of who we're going against, I know I can do that. Carson, as perhaps the most anti-Hitler, but also the most anti-abortion candidate, would you be in favor of aborting baby Hitler? Oh my I'm not in favor of aborting anybody. Mr. Not even Hitler, okay. Pro-Hitler. The voice you just heard belongs to PFT Commenter, a character who slates Ben Mathis Lilly described in 2014 as a stupid man for our stupid times, a Stephen Colbert-esque idiot who overpraises moderately skilled white players for their blue-collar character attributes, and who says, regarding concussions, you've got to jog it off if your brain's nicked, not lock yourself in a planetarium with an ice pack and a doctor's note. Four years later, PFT has gotten huge. He hosts the country's most popular sports podcast, Pardon My Take, for Barstool Sports. And last week, he was the subject of a laudatory profile from Rick Mace of The Washington Post, who says he has a loyal following of fans who are desperate to laugh in a sports world that seems to grow ever more serious. Mace's piece noted parenthetically that at his request, the Post agreed not to reveal his name and many biographical details in reporting this story. In a follow-up piece, Deadspin's Laura Wagner asked why reputable journalistic entities continue to grant PFT commenter anonymity and named him as Eric Sollenberger. Joining us now to discuss is former hang-up intern, Laura Wagner. Welcome back to the studio, Laura. Thanks. Good to be here. You explained in Deadspin that essentially the reason you decided to name him is that his workplace is a misogynistic hellhole, or that was one of the key reasons, um, and that he serves as a front for the exact stereotypes that his character supposedly mocks. Can you explain that? Yeah, so Barstool has a long and continuing history of trafficking in racist stereotypes and joking about rape and ha- and being sexist, both in vague and overt ways. And um, that's some- that's how Barstool built its following, and it's something that they continue today. Uh, should we do some specifics? Dan Katz, Big Cat, one of their main personalities on a podcast joking about fucking an intern. Um, I think they were saying that, like, who could race to fuck an intern first while the intern was on the show. Barstool people on some other show that they do, uh, a Florida TV reporter went on the show, joked about Mexicans and Chinese. A Barstool guy said Jews were stingy. They've made jokes about rape. There's a long list of, uh, of unsavory things that they've done. And it's all done under the guise of comedy, but it's it's very gross. <laughs> it's it's gross, yeah. And the grossness part ties into the character, and there's also this dichotomy, right? He created this persona that sort of typifies who people view as the typical barstool sports uh, reader, listener, audience member. Um, so Sollenberger is trafficking in a sometimes very funny. I mean, let's be clear. I thought, you know, for we had him on the show once. He's a funny guy. He created an interesting character that jibes with the sort of tone of dumb sports take media. But to bring that over to a place that already traffics in that sort of stereotype and has made its success by appealing to sophomoric men. Yeah, I mean, I don't think all fans are like that, and you know, like your standard disclosure. I don't think all people at Barstool are like that, but the company was built on this type of 
quote-unquote humor. And so, yeah, I mean, PFT commenter, I thought he was funny. I mean, like, there were some people on Twitter who were pointing out, like, a few old tweets that I had to him three years ago. And I was like, well, me thinking he was funny before he went to Barstool and started, you know, being a satire of the exact people who signed his paychecks, yeah, it's, it's just, like, loses some of its humor. And well, these things are not mutually exclusive, right. I think, is the point. Yeah, and the really interesting thing that, to your credit, you pointed out and no one had before um, is that places like The Post, I think GQ had done a profile of him. A bunch of places have done flattering laudatory pieces, including Slate, has ever mentioned this guy's real name. I mean, it was on the internet if you really cared to look. But all of these places that you know ran pieces about him granted him this anonymity that typically, um, you know, we we wouldn't just because we didn't want to ruin the bit or because he just asked nicely and it's funny. Mm-hmm. And or he, or because who ru- cared? It didn't really matter who he was. I mean, he was – when we had him on the show, he was not super successful. He was mostly successful tweeting, <laughs> right? right? I mean, he didn't have a gigantic audience other than his Twitter followers. He still had a job well, as and far like, as I Yeah, and the difference is his anonymity used to be central to his bit, I think, you know, before he was doing interviews as himself and not as PF commenter, right. before he was going on ESPN shows and showing his face. I mean, he used to not even show his face at all. Yeah. Now he's like out there being recognized in the street taking selfies and doing interviews as himself where he's talking as Eric Sollenberger, not as PFD commenter, but somehow he's still getting that benefit of anonymity. So, Stefan, the like larger barstool empire here is like it's a fascinating place because on the one hand, you could argue that they're idiots and there's a lot of persuasive <laughs> evidence uh, in that category. It's also an extremely successful business and – a lot of assholes are really good business people. And it seems like the model that they've built at a time when a lot of media organizations are struggling is a really robust one. And so I don't know, like, if you look at everything that they've done, like the entire kind of superstructure, and, you know, if we want to debate where PFT Commander fits into it and whether how, like, key he is to, like, laundering what they do, I wonder how you just kind of... Th- Think of the company in your mind. How do you position them? I position them as a – I think sophomoric is a good word and trafficking in sort of the basest sports instincts of a young and immature audience. I mean, look, there are a lot of teens and 20-somethings that want to look at a picture of the smoke show of the day. I mean, there are a lot of people that are willing to traffic in the sexist and racist stereotypes that have been prominent in sports conversation for decades. Capitalizing on that, who's surprised? I mean, InfoWars is also a very successful media business. I mean, not to equate the two, but I'm equating the two. I mean, there's room on the media landscape for entrepreneurs and business people to take advantage of the lowest forms of dialogue in whatever vertical you want to talk or write about. And I think that's what we see with uh, a site like Barstool Sports. They're capitalizing on an appetite for salacious, silly, stupid, and opinion-making that reinforces not particularly sophisticated views about sports or culture. Well, there's this line, right? Like Deadspin kind of broke through by writing things and saying things that mainstream sports media 
wouldn't write or say. Again, I'm not like equating the two, but like you can position yourself as a truth teller, right? As like a place where people can go. And Clay Travis does this too. Like mm-hmm. you're not going to get the real story from like, you know, Sports Illustrated or ESPN or Washington Post or wherever. Like I'm going to tell you like what's real or what I'm going to act like how people really think. And the line that they've always, I think, crossed and not been able to skirt, but somehow been able to stay in business is like they do that while also just being like totally awful and reprehensible people. But Right. Well, it's because they're, you know, they are espousing the non-PC takes, like they're anti-PC and that's something that they're proud of. Yeah. And I think Clay Travis is somebody who also built an extremely successful business on that, even as people have said that he's like an idiot. And clearly there's like a smart business instinct there to appeal to the lowest common denominator. I think as far as PFT Commenter is concerned, I don't think they plan to bring him on to act as a cover for their grosser humor. But I think that that's what ended up happening. I think Eric wanted somewhere to take his character that would pay him. Barstool wanted they were collecting popular sports personalities. And then as PFT's star sort of grew, Barstool decided to capitalize that on that. And you can you can see that in the people who have partnered with Barstool so they can work with PFT. It's like a huge number of people who I argue would probably not just partner with Barstool. So are you thinking of people like the NFL coaches that go on Pardon My Take? Yeah. You know, that Pardon My Take guys went on ESPN with Mm -hmm. Scott Van Pelt. As we said, it's a hugely popular show. I mean, I I think the direction we need to take this conversation is, um, you know, the way that you've been – treated by this community for writing about them. You know, when you wrote the piece about PFT commenter, he did a thing that's like, I've been doxxed by Laura Wagner. (laughs) And then he told his like, you know, fans, people who, you know, it's unclear if they understand that he's a character. I mean, I I guess some of them do, but he's like, don't harass her, which is not something that you probably need to do if you're not like fomenting a, an environment where you would assume that people would harass someone who writes about them, but you've just gotten the most vile messages. Um, Dave Portnoy, who heads Barstool Sports, like harasses you on a daily basis on Twitter, like asking you for dates and stuff. This was this predates the latest story that you wrote. So why don't you walk us through your reporting over about Barstool? Like how far back does this go? Um, I've written a handful of stories on them dating back to last year. Right. I mean, how Deadspin writes on like every other sports sure. website Media or, site. you know, people in sports do dumb shit and Deadspin writes about it. There's only one fan base who responds in this way, and that is Barstool. But the reason that I thought why identifying PFT commenter as Eric Sollenberger was so important is because you wouldn't expect – Dave Portnoy or Erica Nardini, the CEO who is regularly trotted out to talk about how great Barstool is, or Mike Kearns, who is in charge of Barstool's whole like digital operation and is really he was in charge of, you know, their failed ESPN TV show and all that stuff. I don't think these people are expected to push back against the type of harassment and vitriol that Barstool and its fans regularly engage in. But PFT commenter 
through his character, like you know that through his satire character, he actually is not agreeing with what he's actually saying. It is all a big joke. So I want to know what Eric Sollenberger actually thinks about all of this stuff. And when I asked him about it specifically, he said no comment. And I get that people don't want to say mean things about their bosses, but I think that's pretty telling. Yeah. And the thing that is so fascinating about Portnoy is that, again, I think for marketing reasons, he is just like acts like an enormous asshole, like a horrible Horrible person. Maybe that's a bit too. I don't think it is, but it's hard to imagine that somebody could be as terrible as he as he acts. But it's just really interesting in this age when like CEOs are like so careful and like all of this like behind the scenes behavior is coming out of like people acting terribly. And and this guy is like doing awful stuff just totally out in the open. And he still manages to, like, be the figurehead of this, like, really prominent sports media company. And it does seem like they get, like, special rules around them that, like, they can act in a certain way. Like, obviously, if the head of, like, Univision or Graham Holdings or, like, ESPN acted in this way, they would have a job for, like, five more than five minutes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very worthwhile question which I have tried to put to Peter Chernin, who has massively invested in this company. I would love to know what Peter Chernin would say to that. Yeah, Peter Chernin, a former very high-ranking Fox and Fox Sports executive who's now now involved in Barstool Sports and other properties. So your stories, Laura, have been successful in certainly raising like broad awareness of certain things that Barstool has done, um, gotten a lot of attention. Samantha Ponder was... I think the only person so far who's been able to write about Barstool, maybe this is wrong, but she is at least the most high-profile person who's written about Barstool and actually gotten something to change there. Like after one episode of their show, Barstool Van Talk on ESPN, she called Barstool out publicly for things that they'd written about her and ESPN then um, run by John Skipper pulled out of the partnership and said, like, you know, we thought we could separate, pardon my take, we basically thought we could separate PFT commenter from the rest of the vile crap that they do. And we realized that we can't. Um, Were you surprised that that happened? Or what did you think of the way that Sam Ponder handled that? Um, I think Sam handled it really well. Um, I thought her tweets were sharp and pointed out the hypocrisy and and she did a good job. Um, I think that there were other women behind the scenes who were also, you know, talking to ESPN executives about this, too. And I think that really helped. Um, As I reported at the time, actually, ESPN initially wanted the show to just be part in my take. They didn't want the Barstool name associated with it. So even at the time, they knew that it was coming with all of this baggage that they thought they could ditch, but obviously they couldn't. And so I'm not actually surprised that It did get canceled. I think women at ESPN know what's up and they're willing to talk to their higher ups about it. And um, I think it's I think it's good that ESPN responded in the way they did. But I'm I'm not necessarily surprised. Yeah. As we like wrap up here, I want to get back to his no comment, because as you said, I think that's really important and really telling. And um, I think (laughs) The audience of people that's like sympathetic to your view is not going to be people who like abide harassment. 
But I think people, more people need to ask him, like, what do you think, Eric, about this, like, specific stuff that Barstool has said or done? It seems like a totally fair question. And the fact that he's dodged it, I think that means that people just need to keep asking. And he's not only dodged it, he has made it worse. His statement saying to stoolies, don't harass Laura, was prefaced by him saying, I was doxxed. Doxing is not someone published my name. I, I am a character. I've, I've made money off of this character. It's been successful. I have protected my anonymity. But now I'm talking as myself publicly and these big media organizations have sort of agreed to go along with the joke because they don't find anything offensive about and it. And because they want to look like they're in on that the they're joke. they're part of the joke. Right. They're in on the joke. Doxing is not when you have the army of trolls ready to be unleashed on a target. It's the opposite. You're not doxed when you're the one who has the power. And the irony of him saying that, I mean, probably out of ignorance, maybe not. But the irony of him, say, of him, of, of him saying that and of them rallying behind this cause that the publication of his name, which was already obviously out on the internet, was some sort of of act of violence or vengeance is absurd. Yeah. And also the idea that having his name out there in the public is somehow going to damage his character, which is his livelihood and everything is just total bullshit. I mean, he's concocted this entire story about how like Eric, like Eric Somber like died and now it's his twin brother, PFD commenters, right, something like that. Like stupid. it's just like a whole, whole nother level to his, Shtick, which is fine, as we've all said. Like he is, he's a funny and talented person in a lot of ways. But like the idea that my naming him when it was readily available on the internet for years is going to somehow ruin his ability to do his job is actually absurd. Laura Wagner writes for Deadspin. Her article is so. Who is Barstool's PFT commenter? His name's Eric. Laura Burger. Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> thanks. Now it is time for Afterballs, and Nick Young, as uh, mentioned earlier in the show, is going to be in the finals for the first time, 11th year in the NBA. The man is a walking meme. His nickname is Swaggy P, Stefan. And in 2014, he explained where the nickname came from. He said that God, in a dream, talked to me, and he gave me that name. I'm like, you know what, God? That's a funny name. I might need to run with it. And ever since then, I've been calling myself Swaggy P. It's a household name. You know, people talk about God being sometimes vengeful. Sometimes people talk about the all-consuming love of mm -hmm. God. But people don't often give God uh, the respect that God deserves for a sense of humor. And so thank you, Nick Young, Swaggy P, for pointing out that God can come up with a funny nickname. Stefan, what is your Swaggy P? In our segment on the NFL's national anthem policy, Josh, we talked about the league's history of exploitive patriotism a little bit. And over the weekend, Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post wrote a column getting into that in more detail. In it, she mentioned a Life magazine story about how the NFL handled its players facing the draft during the Vietnam War. Uh, I found the piece on Google Books. It was part of a package featured on the cover of the December 9th, 1966 issue of life. It is titled The Draft, Who Beats It and How? And after the main piece comes the NFL story, Bald Case in Point, Pro Football's Magical Immunity. The piece was written by a life staffer named Donald Jackson. It exposed how the NFL 
chose its own commercial interests over any sort of genuine patriotism during Vietnam. The league had been decimated during World War II when hundreds of players served in the military and teams actually had to merge in order to survive. And now it was trying to avoid the same fate. In 1966, 27% of men between the ages of 18 and 35 were classified as 1A or eligible for military service. But only two, two of the 960 NFL players were drafted that year. Instead, life revealed the NFL having invested hefty bonuses to sign these fast depreciating talents got its players placed in reserve and National Guard units if they were facing the prospect of the draft. How did they do it? Nearly every team, Life reported, has a front office military affairs specialist as indispensable as a place kicker. As the draft board closes in, this man sees that the threatened player applies for membership in a guard or reserve outfit. Unit commanders, who are often fans themselves, are happy to sign up the football players often leapfrogging them over the waiting list. Ordinary citizens have to sweat out their turn and run the risk of being drafted while they wait. And then once a player scored the reserve or guard gig, he would serve during the offseason, which allowed him to play for his NFL team. For some players, though, even that wasn't enough. The Dallas Cowboys, life discovered, had 10 players assigned to a National Guard division. The commanding general of a D.C. area National Guard unit, which boasted five members of the Washington football team, also happened to be the commissioner of the stadium in which the team played. Three Boston Patriots players were recently listed as AWOL by the Massachusetts National Guard until they promised to start attending drills. Of course, having NFL players in the guard or reserve was good PR for the league. In Green Bay, all it took to get a player onto a reserve unit was a phone call. How would you like a couple of Packers in your outfit? Three college players drafted by the Packers flew to Wisconsin long enough to be signed up in the guard while they were still in school in other states. Tom Wodenschick, a running back on the Eagles, was classified as a water purification specialist with the 103rd Engineers of the Pennsylvania National Guard. A Miami Dolphins club official personally appeared at Selective Services headquarters in Washington and pled successfully for a deferment for the team's star linebacker, Frank Emanuel, who was wanted by his Virginia draft board. Life magazine noted that most clubs refused to talk to them about how they kept their draft eligible young men NFL eligible, but the Baltimore Colts and the military were happy to chat. We have an arrangement with the Colts. Major General George Gelston Jr. of the Maryland National Guard told Life when they have a player with a military problem, and I assume the problem was that he might have to serve in the military, they send him to us. The team had five players in the Maryland National Guard at the time, and I'm guessing it wasn't a tough gig. Life reported that Master Sergeant Hurst Loudenslager at the Maryland Guard headquarters is, quote, a totally dedicated sign-carrying super rooter. He attends every Colts home game. He never misses an airport send-off for away games, and he flies the Colt flag outside his Baltimore home. The sergeant once even got to try on a Colt uniform. 
Life ran a picture of the portly Loudon slogger posing dramatically, right hand taped and thrust toward the camera, left leg raised in a running stance, ball tucked firmly in left arm. The two players who were drafted in 1966 were a rookie quarterback with the Cardinals named Gary Snook and a second-year Giants halfback named Smith Reed. Neither of them ever played in the NFL again. Only six active NFL players served in Vietnam, one of them, Bob Kalsu, who was a starting guard for the Buffalo Bills in 1968, was killed in action in 1970. Josh, what's your swaggy pee? We talked at the top of the show about all the missed three-pointers in the Game 7s of the Eastern and Western Conference Finals. What we didn't mention is that James Harden, all on his own, missed 22 straight threes against the Warriors across multiple games. I was listening to one of my favorite NBA podcasts, which is the uh, Sports Illustrated Open Floor podcast with Andrew Sharp and Ben Golliver, and they mentioned the greatest missing a lot of three-pointers game in NBA history, which was Game 7 of the 1994 Finals. Do you remember that one, Stefan? That's the uh, Knicks-Rockets? It was Knicks-Rockets. It was a happier— John Starks? It was, it was John Starks. Yeah, where was, we're going. It was a happier occasion for the Rockets, who won that game 90-84. to uh, Thanks in large part to Starks going 2 for 18 from the floor and 0 for 11 from three. I hadn't looked at that game since 1994, and why would I? It was pretty gross. Uh, but I put it on YouTube uh, last night. I watched the last minute in which the box score – I had forgotten about this. I'm sure like every Knicks fan remembers this uh, very clearly. But I had forgotten how badly Starks missed a three-pointer in the last minute. It was so bad that it was like actually alarming and sad. Um, so let's listen to a clip of that. John Starks having another good look, and this thing falls about five feet short as nobody appeared to hit his arm. And it has just been unbelievable, and people are probably wondering what in the world is Pat Riley doing staying with John Starks in this ballgame. As Matt Gukas uh, went on to explain, the reason that Pat Riley stuck with John Starks is he's been there all year, you got to stick with your guys, et cetera, et cetera. He didn't but, mention volume shooting. <laughs> the things that you would expect an announcer to say in that moment. And Starks has taken a lot of shit for this over the years. In a 2005 interview with the New York Times with Bill Roden, he said, people always talk about mishaps in the NBA finals. To this day, people bring it up. You can't get away from it, but it doesn't stop you from living. Uh, what people don't talk about as much is game six of the 94 finals in which Stark scored 27 and went five of nine from three. He also got blocked by Akeem Olajuwon in the last second. But we're trying to say positive things about John Starks now. Stefan, what do you want to say about John Starks? Remember the time he dunked on Michael Jordan in 1993? That was cool. That was really cool. He also just seems like a good dude. Who knows? It's, it's impossible to say, but it felt bad for John Starks that this happened to him. But let's get back to talking about that game seven and just make... Uh, John Stark's miserable. We are, we're bad people. As Sharp and Golliver pointed out, you need to adjust for the context of the times. Anytime that you're talking about games from a previous era, if you want to talk about it today, you need to, you need to translate it. And so in 1994, let's keep in mind, three-point shooting was a lot less common back then. Teams averaged 9.9 three-point attempts per game in the regular season. Then this year, they averaged 29 three-point attempts per game. That's just the average team. You got the Rockets who are like way, way, way above that. Um, but what that means, to state the obvious, 
is that Starks missed more threes in Game 7 of the NBA Finals than a typical team even shot in an entire game in the 1994 season. What that also means is that translated to an NBA game of 2018, Starks' 0 for 11 was 0 for 32. (laughs) Because he has to miss more than a typical team takes, right? So you thought it was bad that the Rockets missed 27 straight in Game 7 as a collective. Let's just make John Starks feel a little bit worse about himself on this beautiful Tuesday. He basically did that all on his own in the 1994 NBA Finals, Game 7. Doesn't mean he's not a good guy. Has anyone created, like, adjusted (laughs) box scores? That would be cool. Well, because the flip side of that is, like, for so long, I mean, I'm sure you remember this, like, for my entire life um, following the NBA, it's been nobody's ever going to average a triple-double again because when Oscar Robertson did it, it was a totally different context. There's so many. They paid at such a faster pace. But, you know, the game changed. Guys play faster now. Russell Westbrook has done it twice, uh, two years in a row. And so I, I like the adjusted box scores idea. Maybe just for John Starks and just for the 1994 NBA Finals. We can do that as a kind of proof of concept. Mm-hmm. But I think this idea has legs. Kevin Pelton, are you still listening? He is not. Uh, that is our show for today. But thank you for being here, Kevin. Uh, filling in for our producer, Patrick Fort, this week was Andrew Parsons. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.